Uh, if you brought your Bibles, open up to Second Peter. Last night, uh, in many ways, uh, Brian, in his uh, prayer, sort of summed up exactly what I wanted you to get from last night, the big picture. I'm trying to say that really evangelism gets gutted if you don't have an idea of the bigger picture of why I'm doing it. Second of all, what the real sort of um, uh, impetus is for what we actually have to share with people as this true change in our identity. And then thirdly, we talked about the fact that it cannot be done in isolation from the body. It's our introduction. What I want to talk about today, um, for a lot of people, is very foreign. And it was to me until there was a huge turning point around my second year of being a campus minister at Memphis, where I began to read some passages that honestly did not make sense to me. And I coupled that with a conversation I had with a student and there was a lot that changed. So I'm looking forward to being able to share that with you. Second Peter, though, is towards the end of the Bible, back towards the back. And we get a story where the Apostle Peter is talking about the time in which he and two other disciples got a chance to see Jesus the way he looks in heaven. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus sort of pulls back the curtain and allows them to see what he looks like when he's not trying <laughs> to withhold what he looks like. And all of a sudden, um, the, the, God's voice begins to show up as well and speaks out loud to hear, for the, all these disciples to hear. What an extraordinary time. And Peter is reflecting on that moment in 2 Peter, okay? To which he says this, and then I want to skip over another passage. Beginning in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, listen to God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." Verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hold that place and flip over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, this was one of those stories that I also did not understand, did not know what to make of. But it's a familiar story, a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says, beginning in verse 19, that there was a rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, 
For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear, listen to this, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rise should rise from the dead. Fascinating, I think. I want you to imagine that you go to a hospital and you see a doctor and you say, Doctor, I have a headache. I've tried aspirin, I've tried Advil, I've tried Tylenol, but it just keeps getting worse. And what the doctor says to you is, is you have a problem. The problem is that you are sicker than you know. It's not just a headache that you have, but you actually have a tumor pressing on your brain. You have cancer. And the reason why your life is still not getting better is because the remedies that you are applying to your sickness do not account for the reality of the illness. Did you catch that? That's what we call our theme statement for the morning. (laughs) In other words, the remedies that you're applying to your life, because they don't take into account the severity of the illness, then they're not working. That's why they fail for you. J.I. Packer wrote this, actually crazy, 40 uh, 40 years ago. Thanks, buddy. Just go put that in my seat back there. Got my trusty assistant back there. J.I. Packer said, When we go to people in evangelism, we appeal to them as if they had all the ability in the world to receive Christ at any time. We speak of his redeeming work as if, he, as if he had made it possible for us to save ourselves by believing. We speak of God's love as if we're no, mere, no more than a general willingness to receive any who will turn and trust. And we depict the Father and the Son not as sovereignly active in drawing sinners to themselves, but as waiting in quiet impotence at the door of our hearts for us to let them in. It is undeniable that this is how we preach. Perhaps this is what we really believe. Now, I don't know how you react to that, but I simply want to pitch this one idea to you. The case of evangelism, the the task of evangelism, as we go to bring what we believe in Christianity as health to a sin-sick world, our evangelism has got to be in keeping with what the Bible says is really ailing people. And too often times, we assume that that exchange is a little bit less dramatic than it actually is. That's my premise this morning, is that there is something going on in the heart that only God's Word can actually break through. Look, modern evangelism fails, I think. Fails and has failed at the point of offering something to listeners that's not in keeping with their ability in their fallen nature. That's my premise. Look, I only have two points this morning. Two points because of the love of brevity. 
I want you to first of all see that the Word of God is powerful. And secondly, that the Word of God is sufficient. It is able to do the job, and it is all you need. The Bible. Go figure. Look, what if I told you uh, this weekend, this would make the weekend far more interesting, don't you think? That God, on the way here, this is the reason why I was late last night, He appeared to me on the road and granted me special powers to display to you anything that you want to see or experience or have with only one qualification. After you've seen it, after it's been demonstrated for you, you can never ever doubt again that God is true, that His Bible is real, and Jesus is who He said He was. Does that make sense? What would you ask for? I loved asking this question to freshmen uh, at Old Miss for years and years and years. What would you say? Most people would say something like, well, I don't know, how about a miracle? Um, and oftentimes those were very personal things, that my friend would be healed of, of their cancer or my parent would get well from how they're being sick. Others were more sophisticated. They were like, okay, I can have anything? Right. Okay, I'll have a time machine. I would like a time machine to go back in time so I can stand there at the tomb and watch the resurrection myself. Have you ever read the Bible and felt a little bit like a second-class citizen? Because you're reading these stories and you're kind of like, I mean, i got to take his word for it. But had I been there, man, I wish I would have been born during those times. You ever thought that? The desire to want to see it? When I was a kid, this is strange, I have a vivid memory as a child. I could not have been much more older than Luke is right now at eight. And I remember being in my bed at night struggling with all this stuff that I had been told at church and otherwise. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, God, it would not be too hard for you to send an angel into this room. I mean, think about it. You know, just poof, right? He's got to look like an angel, you know, uh, wings, you know, a flaming sword or something. And just look at me and say, Les, it's all true. And poof, he can go about doing whatever it was he was doing. How hard would that possibly be? And I'm telling you, I prayed earnestly for that angel, and he never came. Oh, that would make a much more interesting conference, too, if I said, and one night, <laughs> what? He never came. But I remember wrestling with this. I remember thinking, why not? And you can answer the question, would it have been too hard for God to bring the angel? No. So why didn't he? Why wouldn't he? Why won't he do it for you? Maybe you feel a little bit like uh, my good friend Coop. Coop was uh, in my group, and this was this conversation I had. This was a life-shattering world-shifting conversation I had with this young man. Um, Coop fancied himself a bit of a skeptic. Came to RUF, in his own words, because there were pretty girls there. Well, he was right about that, right? Um, and we got together for lunch at one point, and he was uh, not afraid to fire questions. And at one point during this particular lunch, very uh, huge conversation for me, he asked a question I had no idea what to do with. He said, Les, here's my question. I want to know why it is that God is hiding. Why is God hiding? Of course, you're sitting there, you're eating your Mexican grease, and you're like, um, I don't know, what do you mean by that? Flipping through my, uh, got to be something in here about this. <laughs> and he said, why all the cloak and dagger? I mean, why all the invisibility? And he said this, he said, if God wants for people to believe in him so badly, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Think about that question. 
Why all the invisibility? Why not show yourself here? Now, look, we could talk about that for a long time. That, that little conversation become the source of a lot of different discussions. But I simply want you to understand that in the, the passage we read in 1 Peter, Peter is making an astounding claim because he had a chance to experience what you want to experience. First of all, a miracle. A miracle. A man began to glow. Now, I don't know how much experience you've had with alcohol or mind-altering drugs and chemicals. Maybe you've seen someone glow before, right? But in your sober state, you don't expect to watch someone begin to shine with light and realizing that the light is emanating from them and not coming down on them. They saw it. And as if that wasn't enough, two people who were dead showed up. Remember who they were? Moses and Elijah. It would be like a Bible uh, trivia contest here. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah show up, people who had been long since dead. And then, lastly, as if that wasn't enough, a voice from God. You ever wanted to have that? Man, if God would just speak to me. How hard would this be? God, do you want me to go this direction or that direction? Yes or no? Yes or no? Just say it. You ever gotten frustrated with God in your prayers in that way? Peter, these other couple apostles, saw all of it. They saw it. And he's making a point to be like, we were eyewitnesses to it. We saw it. That is why it is nothing short of bizarre when all of a sudden you get down to verse, what I will look to here, 19, and he says, and we, and now he's talking about we, the us now, having this happened in the past, we have something more Sure. Some of your translations say more certain. Now, think about that for a second. He says, we have something that's even more certain than being able to stand. Watch a dude start to glow. And hear the voice of God himself. Oh, by the way, and have two Old Testament prophets come back from the dead and sit and talk with us. We have something more sure. And if you're not thinking, if you're not being like, what could possibly be more sure than that? He answers it. The prophetic word. The word of God. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that no prophecy came from someone's interpretation. Guys weren't making this up. It was the spirit that was carrying them along that was bringing these words so that when it comes down to it, what you have in Scripture are not words about God. They are God's words. And that is a radically different way of looking at this Bible than the way in which most people think, and the way I grew up thinking. Martin Luther once said this. He said, the word of, God, the word of a human being is a little sound that goes out into the air and it's gone. You ever thought about that? What I'm doing right now is forcing air up through these little sophisticated uh, uh, things called vocal cords, and it's forming words, and your very sophisticated word picker-uppers are doing that and translating into your brain. But in a sense, my words don't do anything. Luther says, but the word of God is heavier than the heaven and the earth. Indeed, it outweighs the heavens and the earth, and it will outlast them. I mean, think about it. Think about if we came all the way to Lake Forest Ranch this weekend, and we saw a storm cloud forming on the horizon, and we saw that it threatened to rain out all of our fun activities we had planned for this afternoon. And suddenly you saw Brian in a furious uh, fit race towards the edge of the water. And he stands out over the water, holds his hands up, and begins to scream, No! Don't rain! In a sense, you would think, We ought to get a new campus minister. You're thinking, Well, I'll transfer to Southern. Maybe Ben's not so crazy. 
Why? Because His words don't, in that sense, do something. Does that make sense? What the Bible is saying is that God's Word never ceases to do something. We all love to do that, that Isaiah 9 passage. You know, God's Word, when it goes, it will never return to Him void. It always accomplishes that for which it went out. And guess what? It's always going out. The Word of God is powerful. Look, there's a couple things to think about before I move on to the last point. If this is true, this is really bad news for people who think that they're going to ignore God's Word. Look, some of you are actually wrestling in your mind about how to reach out to people in your communities. And you're thinking about how do I sort of establish any relevance with them? Like they don't believe. They don't like Christianity. They don't like Christians. They doubt whether the Bible is true. I don't have any sort of like way to connect with them. If what the Bible says is true, yes, you do. Because of the fact that the Bible says that my word is the very framework of reality. And somewhat like a block of wood, if you rub your hand along with the grain of the wood, you get to experience every aspect of the wood. But turn that block around and go against the grain of the wood. What happens? You begin to splinter up your life. Listen, the people who walk around your campus saying to themselves, at last, I am done with that silly religious upbringing. I can come to college and forget it all. The Bible says that to to some degree, they are going against the grain of reality, and we are there to help them identify the splinters in their life that have come from thinking that they can break God's law. Truth of the matter is, nobody breaks God's law. It's God's law that's breaking them because the Word of God is so inevitable. But it's also good news, though, is it not? It's good news because it means that whatever I do that is built upon what God's Word says will never perish. It means that you become an everlasting person when you begin to conform your life to the teachings of this book. And you're not thinking if you haven't wrestled with the fact of does the thing, do the things that I do matter? Look what it says in 1 Peter. Peter's always talking about this. 1 Peter 22 and 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. What is that? Through the living and abiding Word of God. Your salvation is something that's imperishable. It will not fade away. It won't die because it's built upon this book. Y'all, that is huge. (laughs) It means that there's something powerful about God's Word. Okay, some of you are saying, yeah, we got it. Got it? We got that when you first said it last. Move on to the next point. The Word of God is not just powerful, but secondly, the Word of God is also enough. It's sufficient. It is all you need when we deal with the question of evangelism. Look, um, this has huge implications about the way in which we think about evangelism and what we're doing. So many of us freeze at the point of sharing our faith. Ever frozen at that thought? (gasps) He's going to want me to ask me to talk to somebody about this. And we're afraid of being trapped by questions that we can't answer or being uh, introduced to topics that that we're not familiar with that maybe even we don't grasp. And someone's going to sort of catch me in my words and show that I'm wrong which is going to make me deeply spiritually insecure. 
We get frozen by those things. Others confess regularly. I hear people talk about this all the time, that their testimony is boring. You ever said that? That's my testimony is boring. The truth is, I never have known a time when I didn't know and love Jesus, which is actually a good thing. And so what happens is, is we dream of dramatic answers to prayer happening, um, massive campus-wide worship events, right? Uh, 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 or even personally experienced miracles, maybe, to help draw people in. We kind of daydream about that stuff. Look, the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is doing the exact same thing that we're doing. In other words, what he's saying is, is that if his five brothers that are still left over on, on earth, planet earth, if his five brothers could just see something cool, I don't know, how about somebody rising from the dead? I mean, if Lazarus goes back to him, I mean, the sheer freak-out value will bring those people to their senses, right? Right? In other words, he wants some Steven Spielberg you know, special effects to really drive this point home. But you hear what Father Abraham said at the end of that parable? He said, um, actually, they have all they need. They have Moses and the prophets. By the way, what does that little phrase mean? Well, if you're in the New Testament, you're talking about the Old Testament. Moses was often used to signify the first five books of the Bible because he historically is the person that we think wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets were basically everything else. So it was what the people of the New Testament would have had of the Bible. So you see what Father Abraham's saying. Father Abraham's saying, don't worry about your five brothers. They have the Bible. And of course, you know, that's where the rich man is kind of like, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand how it works down here, uh, God. We need to see something a little, a little cooler than that. Because the word of God isn't sort of that interesting. It would be something cooler if we did this. And Father Abraham's like, no, as a matter of fact, if, it, if, if they don't hear the word, it doesn't matter what they see, even if someone rises from the dead. Did y'all catch that, by the way? Jesus is the one telling the story. Who is he talking about rising from the dead? Hello? Himself. Sometimes we can have audience participation. He's talking about himself. I'm going to rise from the dead. And it suddenly occurred to me, probably years after, that when I'm sitting around with, uh, with Coop, and he looks at me and says, why is God hiding? Why doesn't he show up? It didn't occur to me at the moment to, to say, well, you know, actually he did. And guess what? People still didn't believe in him. They rejected him. They sent him to a cross. They crucified him. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. But look, I simply want you to understand that what it dramatically means is that there's a different relationship we have to have to the Word of God. Um, I remember um, a guy on the Discovery Channel. Apparently, ministers, you have to stop on the Discovery Channel when, when you're surfing across and it's the show... You know, mysteries of the Bible. You have to watch these. It's compelling. Now, I remember they were interviewing an atheist about the, the, the reality of heaven. And the interviewer said to the atheist, atheist, you know, what happens if you're wrong? Like, what happens if you die and you show up before God? What are you going to say to God if you happen to be wrong? I mean, the atheist did not miss a beat. As quickly as the question came out, the atheist said, Oh, that's simple. I would look at him and say, you did not give me enough evidence to believe in you. Now look, I'm, I'm not going to take that on in particular. I simply want you to consider that the Bible says the exact 
opposite of what that atheist said on that show. Let's take places like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, listen, pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, look, again, I'm not saying that it answers completely that atheist's question. But I do find it interesting that the very thing he's claiming God has failed to do, the Bible is claiming that God has done very well. Actually, pretty dadgum clearly. So that when you fast forward to places like Romans 1, verses 18 and following, do you remember this? Where Paul is talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, he says, what may be known of God has been revealed to them. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. That's actually the Greek word there. It's plain. The other word we could use is is obvious. So that they are without excuse. Again, I don't think that solves it. I just think it's kind of interesting that on the one hand, here's Coop going, come on, show yourself. Why is God hiding? And the Bible is saying, not only is God not hiding, He actually has made Himself obvious. Look, This is what I simply want to pitch to you. The Bible is saying that if you don't hear God's voice singing around you at all times through the glory of His creation, through the impression of conscience that the Spirit bears witness to in your heart, it's not because He's hiding. It's because we are. My friend Coop was not willing to entertain the possibility that it's not God that was hiding, it was him. That it's not a lack of evidence that causes him to not be present, but it is an overwhelming preponderance of evidence that to be truthful, we just don't like. Because the second that I admit that he's there, I've got a lot that I have to admit about myself. And that means that'll be uncomfortable. And that means that there's shame there, and there's fear there, and there's concern there. And I need to know that there's good news. Which, by the way, the people of God, as they search the Scriptures, found in Jesus. Look, y'all, I don't know whether or not this, you know, solves an issue for you. I don't think it necessarily does in a logical sense. But I hope you've come a long way to grasping that if you are going to believe in the God of the Bible, we now know how it's going to happen. If you're going to come to believe in the God of the Bible, it's going to happen because you read the Bible. Not because someone gave you an airtight argument. It's going to be because the living Lord has revealed himself in the living word. The writer of the book of Hebrews can't even call it a normal book. The word of God is living. It's active. Isn't that creepy the way you talk about a book? This book is active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword pierces all the way down into the nooks and crannies of your soul. It's working. It's powerful. Or you can go Paul in Romans 10. How, listen to this question. This is our question for the weekend. 
How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, yes, good question. How will people at Southern and State call on someone in whom they've not believed? He says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Okay, now I'm starting to feel guilty again because I've got to go out and tell people. Now listen to this. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Didn't see that one coming, did you? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There's another defense for the denominations. Got to be sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from this? Now listen to this, listen to this. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. I think you can finish this. And hearing through the word of Christ. Did you catch that calculus there? Faith comes from hearing and you hear from the word. You don't listen to the word, but your ability to hear comes from the word. Look, this means a lot of things, and I'll give a couple points of application and finish. But it means that your time machine that you started daydreaming of, and I did that illustration at the beginning, would be less effective than you sitting where you are right now with that Bible open in your lap or on your iPhone, however you have your Bible. Does that make sense? To read that book is a thousand times better. To have it opened up and explained for you is a thousand times more compelling than if you could see a miracle. If I decided, y'all, God has given me powers, I'm going to float around the room and begin to levitate and float above him. What, what would have happened if the angel would have shown up in my room? I almost really mean that. I would have walked away probably the next day thinking, was I dreaming? Did I dream that last night? I always love that. You can always doubt your experience, can't you? Look, a couple thoughts about evangelism. First, instead of fretting over what you're going to say to someone when the opportunity arises, start fretting instead over how you can get your friends in front of the freight train of God's Word preached. To me, that's the most biblical way of getting excited about evangelism. What are the many myriad of ways in which I can get people to interact simply with the, with the Word of God? Secondly, it may be that the best evangelism that you do is to invite someone to your church or to RUF. Do you understand? Like the best evangelism ever is to be like, look, I'll be honest with you, he gets there, he opens up his Bible, I'm not sure what I think about that, but there's just something about it. I can't explain it. Why don't you come with me? How hard is that? And it very well might be the most compelling thing because you sit them in front of the Word of God preached. Don't try to persuade them. Let the Word do the work. You don't have to breathe life into God's Word. It comes with its own life already built in. Paul says in, uh, in, in the in first chapter of Romans, um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Notice it didn't say that the Bible talks about salvation. It says the Bible is the power of salvation. The Bible is the power that does it. Thirdly, the best evangelism, therefore, is always centered on the Word. You don't merely come with your own story, your testimony, even though that has its place. The gospel is not your changed life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the revelation 
of God in Christ in the Word. That's the good news. And finally, what this says is that the best training you can have in evangelism is learning to rightly divide the word of truth. I get this question a lot. People say, well, you know, I love RUF, but I also want to be a part of evangelism as well. In other words, they sort of set those two over and against each other. You know, at RUF, it's really cool, but it seems like all y'all really do is kind of teach the Bible and do Bible studies. So it's a Bible study for Christians. I want to go to a place that's a little more about evangelism. Look, I can promise you this, as long as I have anything to say about it. There will never be a time where you show up at RUF where your campus minister does not have something from the Bible to talk to you about. If he tries to do that, show up without it, you tell me and we'll deal with that. (laughs) That I can guarantee you. Folks, what if that is the most compelling thing for someone? What if that alone is the biggest change agent? People ask me, what is RUF about? And I say, RUF is about nothing but evangelism. Because we're about the Word. Because the Word's the only thing that actually changes people. Okay. I'm going to do Q&A again. Is that the way? Or are we wrapping up with a song or something? Oh, we're coming back for that. Sorry, I thought we were transitioning right into that. Can I pray for us very briefly um, before we have our last uh, music? Lord Jesus, um, if nothing else, in the midst of this discussion, would you give us the grace to, to, to look at that, these words on a page um, in a different way, in a way in which we may not have before we came here this weekend, that you have at least described this word in such extraordinary terms of being so powerful. We're also grateful that you have preserved this word as purely as you have. You have seen it through the epics of history, untainted, unscarred, without contradiction, without failing. So, Father, for all those things, we are grateful, and we ask then that if nothing comes from this weekend, you would give us to be committed to rallying people around the explosiveness of what this Word says. Perhaps that's why, Father, when we hear it preached, it makes our heart burn within us to long for you and to long for Christ. In the singing of this last song, would you allow us to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.